The reading today is from Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is God's word. Father, as we continue to look at this strange story of Jonah and a fish and uh, an angry, disgraceful group of people who undergo an extraordinary transformation Would we understand it rightly and more? Would your spirit be at work so we understand what it means for us and we respond rightly to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. About six weeks ago, I had a slightly strange uh, phone call. I uh, phoned up Santander Cycles or Boris Bikes or whatever they are. Uh, Santander. I had uh, used my key and, um, uh, or attempted to use my key to get out one of the bikes and got the nasty noise. Um, and it was saying, no way. So um, oh, I, I late, etc., etc., for where I was going. But anyway, a little later I rang up uh, and said, my key is going. And, uh, and of course, you get the sort of the preamble to any of these sort of helpline phone calls. This call it will be recorded for training and monitoring purposes. And uh, the, the very polite lady comes on the phone and says, can you give me your number? I give him a number. Oh, hello. So that's Matthew Fuller. Yes. Do you mind if I call you Matthew? Well, I kind of do, actually, but it feels a bit churlish to say that. You have, you have that moment of, do you, mind, do you mind if I call you by your nickname? Anyway, uh, no, fine. You call me Matthew. Hello, I'm Claire. Hello, Claire. Um, and... Uh, uh, I tried to do this thing, I go, ah, uh, 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 yes, well, I can see why that is. That's because on Wednesday, you, you took out a bike and didn't return it for 48 hours. Uh, and so now you owe a fine of 150 pounds. Oh, but Claire, not so. Uh, <laughs> I did take out a bike on Wednesday, and I returned it about 10 minutes later, because it wasn't a very long journey. Ah, but Matthew. Um, Only my mother calls me Matthew, and that's when she's annoyed with me. But anyway, let's put it on. But Matthew, uh, you didn't dock it correctly in that case. Oh, but Claire, uh, I did return it, and you have the bike, and there is no damage to the bike, correct? And so I made a mistake, probably. Maybe your lock was faulty. Let's not go there. But... um, do you think 150 pounds is a reasonable fine just for this? Oh, Matthew, I understand. Perhaps 
Perhaps you should just ask to be let off the fine. Well, that's all very well and good, Claire, but do you not think, I mean, really, 150 pounds, and you've got the bike, and there is no damage. This seems a little bit disproportionate to me, in my mind. Ah, Matthew, let me say again, I understand. (laughs) And I would encourage you to ask to be let off the fine. And there's just something in the way she said that. You think, oh, okay, I see this game. Claire, would you let me off my 150 pounds fine? (laughs) Matthew, I would be delighted to do so. (laughs) Now that you've asked, I am permitted. Claire, just just let me run this. You you know, you you can't wave the fine unless someone says the magic words. I wouldn't like to comment over the phone, Matthew. <laughs> However, you have asked for your fine to be waived, and I'm delighted to say that you have nothing to pay. Thank you very much. This has been very strange, but you're lovely. Goodbye. Um, <laughs> it was a strange phone call, you think. Okay, there's the sort of rigid rules that Santander have put around their helpline. doesn't matter what they say, but unless they say the magic words, will you let me off my fine, please? You can do nothing for them. You can't tell them that explicitly, and yet the wonderful Claire had done everything she could to lead me by the nose to say these very specific words. And so I was grateful to her for that. Now, I tell you that story for two reasons. One, it's slightly cathartic. Um, (laughs) But two, there's a sense in which when you come to Jonah chapter 3, the Lord is wanting to lead this group of people, the Ninevites, to repent. That's always his objective. And so he leads them, much as Claire led me to a certain point. Now, in Claire's case, it was somewhat arbitrary, I had to say these certain words. But the Lord's desire is to issue a warning, a threat of judgment upon the Ninevites, to lead them to a very meaningful and real repentance. And so when he issues, as Jonah does, pretty stark words of warning, it's always to lead them to that point of repentance. That's what's going on. So we see Jonah chapter 3, the living God wants to have mercy upon these wicked Ninevites. And if you haven't been here, I've been saying, uh, you can go to the British Museum, room 6 to 9, the Assyrian rooms, and you can see the freezes and the the self-descriptions of how brutal, how wicked, how they love to uh, burn the ears and noses off their victims, off their prisoners. These are pretty brutal people. God wants to have mercy on them. And so leads them to the point of repentance by the threat of judgment. Three things that the Lord gives, uh, and they're there on the sheets, I'm sure they'll appear behind me. There's a second chance for Jonah. The Lord gives a warning of judgment for Nineveh. He then eventually gives a relenting from destruction, and in the middle we see the response that the Ninevites make, okay? So three things the Lord gives, a second chance for Jonah, a warning of judgment for Nineveh, and then eventually a relenting from destruction. Let's go through them. First, then, the Lord gives a second chance for Jonah. Now let me just remind you how the, how the book began. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 1, 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. 
Jonah runs away, uh, he's disobedient. Uh, eventually, uh, the, the Lord throws him into the, the ocean, he's going to die. Jonah repents, and now he's brought to the point of obedience. And so the Lord says to him again, very similar, chapter 3, 1 and 2, but not the same. A few little differences here. So then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So in chapter 1, it's proclaim against Nineveh. Chapter 3, proclaim to it. Slightly different, not as confrontational perhaps. Chapter 1, the emphasis is upon the wickedness of Nineveh. Go and preach against it because of its wickedness. Chapter 3, the emphasis is upon the obedience of Jonah. Proclaim to it the message I give you. Again, most obviously perhaps, chapter 3, the word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah. And so the point being made in these two very similar introductions to the section, God has not given up on Jonah and he's not given up on Nineveh either. At the risk of stating the obvious, uh, chapters 1 and 2, Jonah disobeyed and, and God could have let Jonah drown and say, well, stuff you, Jonah. Uh, you're about, are you someone else? There are plenty of people I could use to go and take a message of, uh, of salvation to Nineveh. But he doesn't. He gives Jonah a second chance. And in many ways, that's very typical. For the Lord is a God of second chances. It's a pattern you often see elsewhere in the scriptures. Let me just give you an example of, of Peter in the New Testament. Notoriously, he, he denies knowing Jesus three times. Do you know this man? No. Are you associated with this man? No. I'm sure I saw you with this man. No. Three times Peter is useless and denies Jesus. And so in John chapter 21, three times Jesus says to him, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. And restores him to his service. He gives Peter a second chance. And says, go and show mercy to others, Peter, as has been shown to you. Well, he still doesn't quite get it, because if you read on in Peter's life, you get, you get to Acts chapter 10, and he needs this extraordinary vision of animals and all sorts of things. He's overwhelmed with this vision, so that he goes and tells other people of the mercy of God. Non-Jews, Gentiles. Oh, Jesus could have given up with Peter many times, but he gives him second chances and third chances. And here's another example of that. A second chance for Jonah, for the Lord is the God of second chances. And so for you and for me, that's good to know. If you're here as a Christian believer, that's good to know. Because it's quite possible to be, and in many ways here's the thrust of Jonah, it's quite possible to be a believer who's pretty self-absorbed and only cares about what God does for you. Barely caring that people outside of Christ are lost eternally. Those who aren't Christians will be shut off from all that is good forever. And it's quite possible to live a fairly self-absorbed life as a believer and not worry too much about them, just like Jonah. And here the encouragement is, well, it's never too late to start. 
you don't actually have to have a near-death experience like Jonah did before you remember what we're meant to be doing. And you don't need to let past failures define you and say, oh, for 20, for 30, for 40 years of my life, I'm just no good at telling other people about Jesus. Well, start now. Jonah ran away from God, was useless at his role of telling other people of the mercy of God. And yet still God uses him to bring about the largest revival that the Bible records, 120,000 people becoming believers in three days. He's a God of second chances. That's the first mercy of God. He gives a second chance to Jonah, verses one and two. But then secondly, then we get to the city itself. Secondly, there's a warning of judgment for Nineveh. Chapter three, verses three and four. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, huzzah. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So Jonah obeys in verse four, tells us what he said. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Presumably, he had more to say than that, uh, because they, they read later on in the Bible that the Ninevites knew a bit more. They knew about his adventures in the great fish, etc. So presumably, there was a bit more than that. But here's the headline, uh, and here's what you and I need to know, the guts of his message. Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, they would have heard that, and clearly they heard that as destroyed. It's the same verb. It gets used of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, destruction. Three days and your city will be absolutely razed to the ground. And yet the, the verb could also be used of an ethical overturning. So it has that certain ambiguity to it. Three days and Nineveh will be overturned, razed to the ground, destroyed. Or three days and the Ninevites will overturn. They'll turn over a new leaf. It's slightly ambiguous. But no doubt about it, they heard it as destruction. They heard it as a warning of judgment. Now, why does God do that? It's clear that he wants to have mercy on these people and he wants them to stop their evil behavior. But the way that God goes about it then is to say, I'm going to destroy you. Well, you'd have to say, it's hard to think of a significant revival in history, that is a period when lots of people become Christians at the same time, or a short period of time, that hasn't mentioned, well, the horrors of hell alongside the wonders of God's love. And sometimes it is only when you've considered the despair of an eternity in hell, by which the Bible means shut off from all that is good, Cut away from God, cut away from anything that is pleasant, from, from love, from laughter, for, for all that we enjoy in this world, just an eternity of all that is bad. Until you've confronted that clearly and considered the despair of eternity in hell, it is hard to realize and acknowledge how wonderful Christ was in coming and enduring that in your place. Now that's true whether we're Christians or not. We can be Christians and take it for granted. 
And sometimes we just need to be reminded how awful that judgment of God would be upon us. If we're not yet persuaded of the Christian faith, I'd encourage you just to consider that for a moment and turn to Jesus Christ. I don't know if you saw the film um, Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, it's a sort of return to form for Mel Gibson, a sort of Oscar nominated apparently. But uh, Hacksaw Ridge, uh, war film um, set in the Second World War. Uh, it tells the story of Desmond Doss primarily. It's a true story of uh, Desmond Doss. He signed up uh, to fight in the US Army in the Second World War, but said he would not bear arms. And they said, mm, when, they, when he signed up, quirky, but okay, and you can go to training. So he went to training, and he was the, the standout soldier, the standout cadet, physically. Uh, uh, he was just strong, brave, etc., and was, was flying in training. Then it came to weapons training, and he said, no, no, I won't bear arms. Uh, just my views as a Christian, in part, and also his family upbringing, that I just don't think that's right. And that was not popular. And so his commanding officer called him a coward. Captain Glover belittles him. To the extent where the, uh, the, his fellow soldiers don't like it. And his fellow soldiers are encouraged to exclude him, to mock him. Indeed, on one occasion to, at night, beat him up within a hair's breadth of death. Because they don't like the fact that he's different and he won't carry a gun into war. Captain Glover hates him. So he has to, uh, first of all, he tries to get him uh, uh, dispatched out of the army for uh, psychiatric reasons. He's not mentally capable of being a soldier. Well, that fails. So they try to court-martial him for insubordination. But, no, under the US Constitution, he's allowed to enter the army and not bear arms. And so off he goes to join the Pacific uh, forces. And while Desmond Doss's story is quite a long one, the film focuses upon one incident. So the US forces uh, are trying to claim uh, Okinawa uh, and um, the Japanese uh, are defending it. And one night they try to attack Hacksaw Ridge. It's not what it's properly called, but it's what the Americans called it. Uh, it's sort of a vertical escarpment and then uh, across a ridge. And upon the first wave of attack, both sides suffered devastating losses. A massive bombardment from US battleships and, and Japanese fighting back. And it's just chaos, and thousands are dying. And darkness descends, and it's night, and everyone's sort of just creeping and moaning. And, and Desmond Doss is there, and he crawls out of his hole, bombshell, and uh, he gets a man who's lost his legs and, and takes him to the edge of the escarpment and lowers him down on the rope, 100 metres down. And the guys at the bottom are going, what's this, this guy? Oh, okay. And then he goes and grabs someone else and lowers him down. 100 meters. And all the while, there's, there's fire. He encounters Japanese troops and miraculously manages to escape them each time. And he himself is just exhausted. He's been shot. As you see him in the film, of course, in these days, incredibly realistic war film, dragging another soldier to the edge of the escarpment, lowering him down 100 meters on a rope. And as exhausted, the guy gets to the bottom. Desmond Doss prays. Just one more, Lord. Let me save just one more. And he goes back and gets one more. It gets to morning and light comes. He saves one guy and the Japanese are going to come for him. So Desmond ties the rope to himself and throws himself off the escarpment, badly injured, but survives. 
And there is Captain Glover, the same guy who'd given him all the hard time in training, who said to him, you have saved 75 soldiers in the night. How on earth have you done that? I am so sorry for how I treated you. And they're given the orders to go and fight again. And Captain Glover says, not until Desmond's prayed for us. (laughs) We're not going anywhere until this man has prayed to his God. And at the end of the film, it sort of segues into a more recent time. And uh, of course, it's a true story. You've got the, 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 the main protagonists are there, although Desmond Doss is now dead. But uh, they interview the, the elderly Captain Glover, or whatever he was now, uh, Colonel, by the time he retired. Uh, and of course, he said, yeah, when I met Doss in training, he wound me up. I thought he was a coward. But in the hell of the battlefield... I realized he was the bravest man I'd ever met. I'd seriously misjudged him. He relentlessly put his own life on the line to save men who'd mocked him for months. He's welling up as an elderly man. He's the bravest man I ever met. Look, I've taken time on that. Why so? You may not think much of Jesus Christ, or you may be a Christian, you take him somewhat for granted, you call him saviour. But it is those moments when for you and I, we look upon the hell of the battlefield, or not the battlefield, hell itself, and think Jesus Christ is the man who endured that in himself, emotionally, spiritually, took eternal death upon himself so that I might live. And it's when we look at that and when we see it clearly, the horror and his bravery, we think to ourselves, there is the greatest man who ever lived. Only then do you see his worth. So the Ninevites, verses, verse 3, verse 4, it's only succinct what we're told. But they're given Judgment. 40 days, and every single one of you destroyed. Oh, oh, we need help. It is a mercy of God when he shows you or warns you of judgment. When you see in your mind hell, it is a mercy of his designed to bring us to repentance. There's a second chance for Jonah, verses 1 and 2. There's a warning of judgment uh, for Nineveh in verses 3 and 4. Those are the two things that the Lord gives. Let's look briefly at the the Ninevites' response before we get on to the final thing. So verses 5 to 9, here is their response, the response from Nineveh, their repentance, verse 5. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Well, that is extraordinary. I wish I could have that impact upon 120 people, let alone 120,000, you say one sentence, everyone goes, yeah, we'll do it. I can't even do that in my own home, let alone to 120,000 people. Now, what do you make of this? Clearly, this is extraordinary, and God is at work. It's his work to produce this citywide change of heart, repentance. There are three little things worth noticing, I think. Uh, one, it is, it is the word of God at work. So verse 6, we're told this, when Jonah's warning reached the kingdom, he rose from the throne. 
took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Jonah doesn't preach to the king. And yet still Jonah's warning reaches him. Because clearly people were chatting about this. The word of God spread. So the king's response is the same. It's fasting and sackcloth. Just a little reminder, when you, when you do share the word of God with someone, when you tell them about Jesus Christ, you don't know quite where it goes next. Wonderfully, it was at work here. So the word was at work. Uh, secondly, their, their behavior gets changed. Verses 7 and 8. Here's the proclamation issued by the king. Verse 7. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh by the decree of the, of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Everything changes. So here's the little detail that the king adds to what the people were already doing. It's that little phrase in verse 8. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. So it's changed mind and changed behavior. And that is repentance. Repentance begins with a change of mind and issues in changed behavior. And it's the two together show that it's real. Of course, in one sense, the, the, the instant response, 40 days and you're going to get judged. Quick, everyone, put on the sackcloth and sit in ashes. Well, who wants to do that? I don't particularly want to do that. But in one sense, anyone can do it for a brief period of time. You can make the dramatic change. Quick, put the donkeys in sackcloth. Okay. Um, it's a slightly quirky thing to do, but you can do it and you can get on with it. But it's whether the change actually lasts that matters. So you might think of a, a, a work scenario. An employer says to a member of staff, uh, look, you're on your final warning, you've had verbal warnings, two of them, written warnings, two of them, uh, you never turn up for work on time, you never turn in the work on time, you're, you're rude to your colleagues, you're rude to your bosses, your final warning, uh, the f- following week, nothing's changed, you're fired. At that moment, the employee says, oh no, I'm so sorry, I wasn't really paying attention. I'm so sorry. I've been distracted. What am I meant to do? Oh, turn up on time. Oh, uh, respond to email. Uh, I promise you, I will do that from now on in. Will you give me one more chance? Okay, says naive but benevolent uh, employer. Okay. And so for the next fortnight, it's the model employee. They're there at 8.55 every morning. And everything, every email is replied to within 30 minutes, and, and every piece of work is excellent. And, oh, wow, there's, they really have changed. I'm glad I gave them a second chance. But after two weeks, oh, it all tails off again. And he's back to turning up at midday and never responding. And, and at that point, the employer says, really, get out. Anyone can say they're sorry for a fortnight. Get out. If you're really changing, it's a change of mind that issues in changed life. That's what the king is calling for here. He's saying, okay, let's really do this properly. So for you and for me, look, I, I guess, confession on a Sunday, good. But if it doesn't issue in a change of lifestyle, so what? It's meaningless, really. 
So I'm here and I say, Lord, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong, uh, but then I can't be bothered to come and encourage anyone at church for the next month. So what? Is that confession? No. Not really. Oh, Lord, I'm here on Sunday morning. I'm so sorry for what I've done wrong. uh, And and I confess, uh, la, 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 amen. Um, But there's no change. And you know you're deliberately carrying on in some immorality, impropriety. Now, the Ninevites get that right. Their repentance begins with a change of mind, issues in a change of life. So look, the word is at work amongst them, their behavior has changed. Uh, and then last little thing, there's humble hope. There is humble hope, which is that little phrase, verse nine. King says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Who knows? And I think the king is saying, look, I can't make God owe me. But can I just point out a difference for those of us living, well, all of us, because uh, we live this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. I think we all do. The, um, now God is firm in his promises. So anyone who now says, Lord God, I am sorry for a pattern of life which didn't recognize you, honor you. I thank you that Jesus has cried in my, died in my place and I commit myself to follow him. You never then say, well, who knows if God will answer that prayer? For he has promised through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, that he will always answer a prayer of repentance that asks for forgiveness through Jesus. So you and I today, we never say, well, who knows if God will forgive us? We can certainly say, God will forgive me. If you ever doubt that, will God forgive me? You look at the cross. He will. But the repentance from Nineveh is sincere, it seems. Okay, so look, God gives a second chance for Jonah, that's a mercy. He gives a warning of judgment for the Ninevites, that's a mercy. Their repentance is genuine. And then third, here's what God wanted to give all along, a relenting from destruction. Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Hmm. Question. Has God changed his mind? Answer, no. He had always intended the threat of judgment to lead them to repentance, so he'd have mercy on them. Just as my phone lady, Claire, led me to the point of saying, can I be forgiven my phone? He'd always intended it that way. Now, you read the book of Jonah, and that may not be obvious. Let me just give you one. I'm not going to read it all, but you can scribble it down, and you can ask me about it afterwards if you want. But one slightly longer reference. uh, Jeremiah chapter 18. We might get it up on the screen. We may have that, uh, some of it. I won't read it all, but let me just pick it up from verse 7. The Lord says... If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, verse 8, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I'd planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and doesn't obey me, then I will reconsider the good I intended for it. In other words, 
any prophecy that the Lord makes, including the Old Testament here, is really a warning or a promise, but there are tacit conditions attached to it. So although Jonah doesn't say it out loud, the message to Nineveh is 40 more days and you'll be overturned, unless you repent, of course. Now Jonah knew that, that's why he says it, we'll see it next time in chapter 4, verse 2, just look at that of Jonah. Jonah prayed to the Lord, oh, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew if I said to the Ninevites, 40 more days and you'd be overturned, that they'd repent and you'd have mercy on them. I knew it, because you're always like this, forgiving people. It's your thing. And I like it for me, and I don't like it for them. And so it's not that God has changed his mind. God relents as he plans to do in response to their repentance. He issues the warning, so they repent, so he relents. Always his aim, ambition, intention. Because he loves to have mercy. Let me summarize in one sentence in three words. How do we respond then to a, a God who is so determined to have mercy upon people? Three little words. One, well, repent. If you're not yet a Christian, hear that when you die, God will judge you for all you've done wrong and you'll be separated from him forever in eternity. So repent. Like the Ninevites did. And say, look, I want to trust in Jesus Christ. That he's endured hell for me. And you don't say that, who knows? You say that, Amen. I am certain that Christ has paid for me. Repent. Secondly, if you're a Christian here this morning, pray. For the Christians, our prayer for our city, I guess, is verse 9. Who knows what God will do in London? Who knows? We have no promises about what he'll do in London. But we should commit ourselves to praying. It is his work to have these sort of mass repentance, mass revivals. We need to pray. Revival is God's work. We have to pray for it. Repent, pray. Lastly, obey. Revival is God's work, but evangelism, telling people about Jesus, is our work. And we want to be like God in this. Committed to telling people that there is a judgment coming, a day of judgment, but that God wants to have mercy upon people. The Lord delights to show mercy. And so in that sense, you and I can aspire, can try to be a little bit more like Desmond Doss and say, Lord, just one more. Will you help me share the message of Jesus' forgiveness with just one more? Will you allow us to see just one more saved forever? Father, you love to have mercy. Just one more, please. He is a God of mercy. He gives a second chance for Jonah, a warning of judgment for Nineveh, so that destruction doesn't come upon the city. And he wants to do that for many, many individuals in our city. Repent if you've never done so. Let's pray that many would come to know Christ. And let's obey and ask and go.
to just one more. Let me lead us as we do so. Our Father, it is sobering to be reminded that a day of judgment is coming and to be shut out from your presence and to be cast into darkness forever will be horrible. It's sobering to be reminded. But Father, it's wonderful to also know that you are a God of mercy. Your desire is to have mercy. Your ambition, your hope, if we can put it in such strong language, your intention is that people turn to you through Jesus Christ. So Father, would you help us who are Christians do our job of pointing them to the Lord Jesus so they find wonderful mercy in him. Amen.